Our next guest and I e-met each other a few days ago, uh, introduced by a mutual friend, and I sent him a, a quick email saying, hi, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, this is not a new thing. And he got right back to me and said, it's okay. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. What we're talking about is, is a new concept, well, an old concept that's maybe found its time again. We're talking about rent to own. And we're uh, delighted to have Amina Scooch with us to talk about rent to own. Mr. Scooch is the managing partner with Alt Trust Financial, a development company here in Metro Vancouver. Amin, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. That's good to have you with us. Uh, let's talk, uh, first of all, about the fundamentals, because it is an old concept that has fallen away for a variety of reasons, but now it's back in Metro Vancouver. Explain in its most rudimentary form, Amin, please, the concept of rent to own. Well, the concept is really basic. The idea is that uh, you allow individuals who are currently renting to save up the rents throughout the period of, say, 24 months, and then use uh, those rent payments uh, towards their down payment at the end of the term. So let's say if you're paying, say, $2,000 a month for, uh, for a unit, those $2,000 a month payments will get added up over the period of two years. That's $48,000 that now you have that otherwise would have gone through rent mm -hmm. and you would never see back that now you can use towards your down payment. So does does uh, that's interesting because uh, let's just use that nice round two thousand dollar a month figure and and that's it's not a, a an outrageous number for a typical monthly rent here in Metro Vancouver at all. So let's use two thousand uh, bucks. If you're paying that as rent, does all of the money that you're paying into that s go into down payment, or does some of it go to rent and a portion of it go to down payment? Well, the different developers, different uh, sellers structure it differently. The way that we've done it in our latest project uh, in 3000 Henry and Port Moody is we allow the entirety of the rent, 100% uh -huh. of the rent to be accumulated towards the down payment. Okay, because that's not always the case. And I'm glad you specified that because I've done a little homework myself uh, in advance of, of having an opportunity to speak with you. Uh, and it, it isn't necessarily the case that uh, all, of the, uh, all of the funds automatically go towards the down payment. For example, if you go to tenantsbc.ca, uh, they'll tell you that there are a number of options. So what is the, the, now let's first of all talk about where your company has a rent-to-own development. You're in Port Moody, right? Yeah, our latest project is uh, one at 3000 Henry in Port Moody. And um, the way that we've structured it is, uh, again, 100% of the rent goes towards the down payment. Not only that, for the period of time, uh, for the two years period, the developer will take on the cost of property taxes, uh, the insurance on the unit maintenance, uh, and all the strata fees. So, uh, those are additional savings, and beyond that, the other the added benefit is that um, the prices are going to be fixed at the very beginning uh, of the contract. So right. for the two-year period, you're not going to see any price escalation. 
Well, and you know, that's that's kind of an important detail at the best of times. But right now, particularly, I mean, we're seeing uh, predictions, wild predictions, as a matter of fact, from a variety of sources that aren't all uniform. In other words, some people are saying, well, house prices in Metro Vancouver may come off uh, three to five percent. Other people are saying, no, we're having a massive major correction of over 10 percent. And still others are saying, no, 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 we're expecting prices to go up in the next year. So with that kind of lack of coherent predictability, especially in this market, which has never been terribly predictable, a fixed price at the beginning of the exercise really cuts through all that stuff, doesn't it? It does. And also, uh, it's important to remember uh, for the structure that, again, we've set up, we've, we've tried to make it as favorable to the per- to the people who are subscribing to this program. So at the end of the two-year period, if uh, the if the prices, let's say, have dropped, I mean, we could get into the debate about whether or not prices are going to go sure. up or down, but I think we'll be here all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have our own point of view on that. But uh, at the end of the two-year period, the subscribers could simply walk away, uh, and all they lose is the rents that they would have lost regardless. Oh. Uh, and that way, we basically make this a risk-free proposition for, for, for the residents. And the idea is to really help people get into ownership. Uh, what we found in our engagement with the community when we were trying to design a program for affordability is that down payment is seriously a big impediment. Absolutely. Uh, not everyone has the uh, luxury resource of the bank of mom and dad, for example, to lean on for some a little a little extra bonus cash to get over that threshold and get the down payment done. But it's interesting. Just back to the to the to the arrangement of the contract with the with the uh, potential owner. So it's a two year term, and this one, I mean, correct. Correct. In our case, it's a two-year term. Okay. So you go into this and you, you've got, and I'll, we'll talk about the options available, and there are multiple options, but let's say you take a, a two-bedroom, two-bathroom unit for two years. So here's the rent for your next two years, and so you, I would assume you sign a lease for the two years, Correct. Correct. There is a lease agreement in addition to the purchase agreement. Okay, that's fair ball. So at the end of the term, uh, and here's the agreed to price. This is what this is what the unit is going to cost two years from now. And if the price has decreased in the marketplace significantly to the point where you feel you would be overpaying for that unit, you can walk away. And you've all you've lost, and you haven't lost anything because you had to have a place to live for the last two years, and you've had a nice brand new where everything works place to live for the last two years absolutely so hard to lose in a situation like that isn't it well that's the case and that's precisely the reason why we're trying to spread the message and hope that um, you know other developers uh, kind of follow the same footsteps so like you said this is not a brand new concept and um, you know Port Moody to their credit have done a great job with this concept there's a precedent that we basically followed and based on the success story that we've heard and the community engagement that we've had, uh, we understood the need of the community mm-hmm. for, uh, for this program. Uh, and we've had overwhelming support. Uh, so some stories that are just heartbreaking. And we wish that we could have done more. Um, and through spreading the message, we're hoping that others follow suit. And this is a concept that's really basic in essence. And I'm just uh, very surprised to see not a lot of that is happening, given the current climate. 
3000henry.com, by the way, is the website, friends, for this particular alt-trust development in Port Moody. And it's on Henry Street, and it's close to transit. That's a big part of uh, of attractions these days, no matter where you locate in Metro Vancouver. I mean, uh, this is uh, close to SkyTrain and all of the amenities. It's in a family-oriented part of town. And you were talking about the municipality and the degree of cooperation that they've been giving you. What sort of extra or what sort of negotiating is required when you do a rent-to-own project that might be different from just a condo deal? Well, uh, municipalities typically have their own programs. And in the case uh, of Port Moody, they've been open to an idea because to the idea of rent-to-own um, as an affordability measure, which you really appreciate. Um, other programs, other municipalities might have uh, you know, set policies. And I think it's important for the community uh, the, the private sector and the public for municipalities to all partner up to understand that um, there's a lot of concentration and focus on low-income affordability measures. Yes. And I think it's, it's really important to also look at the middle class and middle-income families. Port Moody, for example, has a very high uh, average household income at 110000 or so uh, per household. That, uh, you know, traditional affordability measures says 30% of your income, of your gross income, should go towards housing. That's yes. about 2500 bucks a month, 2700 bucks a month. But yet, that supports an, an $850,000 home in terms of mortgage payment. But if you don't have the down payment, it's right to save up for that. You know, my calculation says, you know, it, it's going to take between eight to nine years for an average family if you don't have the bank of mom and dad. Right. So with policies like rent to own, you can drop that down to about five years. Two years of which is the duration that you're you're in the you're in the program. So uh, it's a tremendous amount of impact on the community and the ownership. And one of the measures of you know upward mobility uh, in any uh, in any economy is the home ownership. And I think it's important that you know that partnership, the policies are set to to try and incentivize more of these kind of programs. Right. Now, let's let's uh, back to the, uh, the to the model that you describe because uh, again, it, there's uh, it's very attractive for a lot of people who just don't have the ability to dip into some reserve and pull out a great wad of cash and and make the big uh, housing move. So this way, you would uh, first you, you sign two contracts, correct? One is the lease on the on the apartment or the the condo that you're going to occupy for two years. That's that. I mean, in any renter or most renters are going to sign some kind of lease arrangement when they move into anywhere. So this is not unusual. What's the second document, Amin? So there are actually three contracts. One okay. is uh, the, you know, your usual purchase and sale agreement that you would do when you pre-sale um, any, any condo anywhere across town. The, the second is the lease agreement that where, you, where you agree to lease the unit at, at certain rates. Right. Uh, for the duration of the two years. And then the third is a delayed closing contract, which says, yes, I've bought into this unit, but I agree and the developer agrees that you're not going to buy it on, on completion. You, you will have a period of two years, and then that allows them to wait for two years before before they close uh, on the unit that they've subscribed to. Ah, okay. And the first one you talked about was a pre-sale, or in, and that just basically, what, agrees to the price that uh, all parties are okay with uh, at the beginning of the exercise? Correct. That's a standard purchase and sale agreement that um, you, would, you would need to sign 
when you buy into any 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 property. So what happens though? And again, I'm just trying to do the math, and I never should on live radio. But what happens <laughs> if when you you finish your two year term, and that money is now allocated to the down payment, but there's still a, a difference between the amount that should be uh, used for a down payment based on mortgage realities that you have to have X percent before the bank will give you a mortgage. Suppose there's a difference. Are you required at that two year point? to make up the difference in cash, I mean? You are. And uh, that's part of the reason why the, we're going to be very selective in terms of um, who uh, gets to enter into this program based on based on need, based on personal circumstances. And also, uh, we make sure that they do qualify at the end of the two years uh, to purchase the units by having sort of previous uh, discussions with the bank and having a letter of qualification to make sure that opportunity is not taken away from another individual who might uh, who might otherwise be able to buy it. Ah, so do you have to pre-qualify for a mortgage in order to sign the original agreement uh, based on, okay, here's the price, and then you move into the lease and, and the other agreements? Do you have to be able to qualify for a mortgage before you sign anything? Correct. So it would not be like a, a hard qualification. It would just basically be an assessment by the bank that says, yes, this individual, given the down payment is saved up at the end of this period will be eligible for a mortgage. And then the actual qualification happens at the end. But this is a sort of a screening mechanism sure. to, be, to be fair to, to the participants to make sure that the people who do sign up actually have the means to close at the end of the two-year period. So what sort of, uh, of interest, love? This is a fascinating concept for those who have jobs and just not gobs of money in the closet. Uh, this represents an opportunity to move to home ownership if that's their goal. What sort of interest are you attracting? Phenomenal interest. Uh, some of the stories that we're hearing are, so these are you know, your nurses in the community. These are your engineers, professionals, tradespeople people who, who do have a substantial level of income. And again, uh, as we mentioned, they don't have access to a glove of cash, right. uh, but the responsible, um, professional, high-earning individuals who for one reason or another have been locked out of the housing market. And, and this is an opportunity for us to, to maintain, uh, you know, to, to, to give them an opportunity to own a home and then maintain their connection to the community that they live in, uh, which is why I think this concept is so powerful. And that it should be it should be looked at uh, by all, all municipalities, honestly, as as a policy, uh, and be incentivized. How many uh, units do you have? How many are and how many are still available? Well, we have uh, we're still in the planning phases, so we're still looking for um, approval. Uh, but we are the latest planning stages. We're going for a third and final reading, third uh, reading, and the public hearing at the end of this month, and we're hoping that, um, um, again, once you're approved, uh, we have 173 units uh, that will be brought to market, and 10% of those units will be provided as rent-to-own, so 17 units. Ah, okay. And uh, so all subject to, of course, a ratification by an approval by city council at the end of the month. Will you do us a favor, please, Amin, after that final vote and you get the thumbs up and the green light to go ahead, will you give us a call and let us know so we can pass along the word? Absolutely. Happy to be back. Okay, great stuff, and uh, good luck with this. It's uh, an, an old idea whose time might just have come back again. Thanks for doing this this morning. Thank you, Sterling. There's Amin Escoot from Altrust Financial, developers of the project on Henry Street in Port Moody, 3000 Henry Street. 
The big news story in Canada this week has been the 900 plus million dollar debacle uh, of the Trudeau government uh, trying to give this money, taxpayer borrowed money. We don't have that actual funds. Those will be borrowed to we to administer a new program, the Canada Student Service Grant Program. Uh, Well, lots of red flags, lots of controversy. Uh, Several members of parliament, three in fact, sat down and penned a letter to the Ethics Commissioner saying, really, you do need to take a long, hard look at this. The Ethics Commissioner said, okay. One of the authors of that letter was Dan Albus, British Columbia Member of Parliament for Central Okanagan, Samilkami Nicola. Dan is at home this weekend in West Kelowna and has, I'm thinking, probably a lot more to say about what went down this week in Ottawa. Dan, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you back with us. Uh, Let's start right at square one. The announcement by the Prime Minister's office that $912 million was going to be given without uh, any competition or any consideration or discussion to the WE charity to administer this Canada Student Service Grant, uh, basically because, in the words of the Prime Minister, the Canadian Civil Service was incapable of doing the job. That was red flag number one, at least for many of us and I was just watching at home. What was your reaction? Well, it was an outlandish claim that, uh, and you were certainly right, there was no request for proposal. So we, we would, there's other organizations that may have had an interest in, in putting forward a bid. At least that would have given it the veneer that it was competitive uh, and therefore that taxpayers were going to get some value for money. But the moment you have where a prime minister, uh, and let's not forget, uh, he and his family have attended many of their events. Oh, sure. Publicly supported We Charity. Uh, and so when you have these kinds of, of, of strong ties with no RFP, it, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that this needs a closer look at. Well, and as, as it turns out, a preliminary closer look determined quickly that the Prime Minister's office had in fact awarded several sole-sourced, no-competitive type contracts to the WE organization over the past year. Now, to be fair, none in the enormous amount of money category that this particular project represented, Dan, but nonetheless, uh, there were taxpayer dollars funneled to WE uh, non-competitively. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and, and again, this is where we have uh, said this is a pattern. Um, and to suddenly be giving $900 million to the care uh, of an organization without a request for proposal, making the claim that no other organization in Canada, including the Government of Canada, which, by the way, runs every year the Canada Summer Jobs Program, mm-hmm. which links students uh, with usually a volunteer or business organizations uh, to do safe work, uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, like you said, a, a big red flag. And again, these are taxpayer dollars. And effectively, by outsourcing this to we, Sterling, he, the prime minister and his cabinet were attempting to do a run around parliament. So meaning that usually when you go through the proper process and channels, there are transparency mechanisms. So for example, reporters, members of parliament can run access to information requests. We can put forward orders on the question paper, asking questions of the government, getting facts. But the way that the prime minister structured this from day one by sole sourcing this out means that all of those things would have been brushed aside. And when you have reporters phoning we can, we can, uh, charity and we charity saying, no, go talk to the government, and right. then the government doesn't answer your emails, that's a big uh, problem. And so this is why we've written to the auditor general, 
This is why we talked to the uh, ombudsman and ultimately the ethics commissioner, uh, because this, uh, as, as, you, as, you, as you said, this doesn't seem right. Now, the procurement ombudsman is also a player on this field, Dan. Let's talk about who that individual is and what their job is and how they might fit into this picture. Yes. So uh, this was brought as part of, just along the side with the, uh, the uh, uh, ethics commissioner. This was all part of the Accountability Act, the first act that Mr. Harper had brought into office. And the idea was is that the public service uh, you know, should always be transparent to Canadians. There should be processes to ensure that, uh, that uh, public money is being spent for good value. Right. And that obviously uh, having the Auditor General review these funds at the end of the year, um, it's also good to have someone on the front end. So that's really what the ombudsman, uh, the ombudsperson is supposed to do is to make sure that procurements uh, are done cleanly. Uh, and again, you know, we, we want to always remind ourselves that, you know, Canada is a great country, but the reason why you put these transparency mechanisms, the reason why Mr. Harper put forward these things in the Accountability Act is to make sure that there is not waste, there is not corruption or fraud. And so the more transparency we have, and let's not forget the prime minister used to say that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Right. Well, I agree with those words. And that's where I think that uh, so many questions have been erased by this. And when you start listening to some of the things that journalists have found out, Bill Curry from the Globe and Mail, for example, uh, found out that they were going to be giving $12,000 for teachers to refer students to this. Yes. Uh, and then uh, Christopher Nardi from the, the Post Media had said, let's, uh, they had found out that the uh, We Charity was offering $25,000 to participating camps for bringing 75 volunteers to volunteer. It, there, there's all sorts of questions here about where this money is going. One member of Parliament described it as like the Amway uh, of public uh, dollars uh, service delivery. Uh, you know, and, and that's those, these are really big questions because, you know, are the funds were they were they going to get eaten up by referral fees to teachers and camps? I don't think that's really what people envisioned when they thought of a student service grant. I think they thought about seeing people working at food banks or at homeless shelters to help the vulnerable. Well, and then there's a couple of things here. First of all, we tried to get Bill Curry from The Globe to come on and talk about his findings. His company's legal department wouldn't let him. That's how thick the soup was on the day we sent that request, Dan. And the other part of it is the whole notion of volunteering. You'll notice that one of the first people contacted after all of these facts began to spill out was Volunteer Canada. Remember them? Well, yes, of course we all do. So the CEO of Volunteer Canada says, we contacted us to try to coordinate with them and make sure that the this was a, a really effective uh, operation, and they declined because they said it flies in the face of what volunteering is supposed to mean. Volunteering means you donate your time out of the goodness of your heart. And if you're being paid, and in this case, less than minimum wage, it defeats the notion of volunteering. So they took a pass. Well, and again, uh, Bill Curry also found out uh, that uh, We Charity actually was not just administering the program, they were actually participating in. So they had hundreds of positions 
that they have uh, that they were have posted, calling for people to do social media uh, mindfulness and whatnot. I don't want to get into debate of, on whether those things are good or not. Right, but again, right. I go back to the original discussion here. Uh, you know, when people first envisioned this grant, they thought about people helping out in places like food banks uh, and homeless shelters. Sure, they did not, I'm sure, anticipate that we charity, which was getting a referral fee uh, by the sounds of it. We don't, we don't know because the contract was never made public, but they were actually participating in it. So what kind of criteria did they have? And really, how do I as a member of parliament hold a charity to account for who they push to the front uh, to get all these positions to? What happens to the charities that do not qualify? What happens to the, to the young people that do not get the positions and they come to me to hold me accountable? I can't, I can't tell them where the money went. I can't tell you what We Charity was thinking. I can't tell them what the, the government of Canada was thinking in regards to this. Well, hold on for so a second. This ultimately is accountable. Yeah, all things being equal, uh, if Mr. Trudeau had got his way and this little scheme went forward and uh, exactly as he planned it along with the Kielbergers, what access to uh, information once the plan was implemented and moving forward, typically a government program like the Student Jobs Program, the Auditor General can poke around and have a look anytime the, they please. However, if this program, uh, sourced out to a, a single private organization like we, had gone forward, Dan, what scrutiny would it have been under? Well, and that's that's the biggest part here. As I said, this is an end run around Parliament and the usual transparency mechanisms. Now, the Auditor General may have been able to say, on what criteria did you give this this uh, the, these contracts? Uh, if you if you, but they but the Auditor General would not have the ability to force we to hand over any materials showing value for money. Right. That is really what the principal concern here is, is one of accountability. And, you know, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why we've been asking for these outside agencies, because Parliament isn't sitting. We don't have the ability right now to jump up in question period and, and quiz the, the Prime Minister uh, to, to ask, to lodge order paper questions, which forces the government to give an answer within a reasonable time. And uh, so when you look at how all this thing shook down, it, you know, especially, uh, you know, during Canada Day week, uh, you know, there's a lot of big questions. Was the government trying to pull a fast one? Um, and obviously it felt that uh, it couldn't proceed uh, because they've, they've said now that they're the ones that are going to be running the program. Uh, although there's still some, you know, the Prime Minister said at his press conference that there was a, a joint decision between the government and We Charity to not continue. While his minister had said that we had decided not to continue. So we, we don't know who didn't like the amount of scrutiny that was happening here, whether it was the organization itself or whether it was the cabinet of Mr. Trudeau. Here's a quote from the National President of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Quote, Mr. Trudeau's claim that the WE charity is the only one that can administer the new grant program is not only factually wrong, it's also insulting to our members. These, of course, are the civil servants who do administer most government programs. Our guest on the line from West Kelowna is Dan Albus, Conservative MP for Central Okanagan, Similkameen Nicola, one of the three authors of a letter to the Ethics Commissioner this week, Dan, uh, requesting an investigation. Uh, this is not new for the Ethics Commissioner. He's investigated the Prime Minister twice before, once on SNC-Lavalin, and once uh, for that visit to the Aga Khan 
John's private island. Um, and he has already indicated by way of response that he will conduct some kind of investigation. What can you tell us about that going forward? Uh, obviously, just getting started, right? Well, absolutely. And uh, again, the uh, the office of the ethics commissioner is independent. And uh, but uh, as you said earlier, he has accepted uh, the request and uh, it will be uh, doing an investigation. I, I read the letter in, in response. And really, the one area that I think that focuses the most on is Section 6.1, which prohibits public office holders such as the prime minister uh, from making decisions uh, that could either further their own private interest or those of another uh, of another group. So uh, that's going to be one element that the uh, commissioner will, will look at. It's important that uh, when elected officials have uh, either private interests that they do not participate in the decision-making or even the discussions around that. Uh, and I do know that Mr. Trudeau's, uh, you know, uh, uh, his, his, uh, when he was asked the question by a reporter, you know, did you discuss this at cabinet? Did you recuse yourself? Uh, he was silent on that. So, you know, these are questions that really, that's why we have an, an ethics commissioner where you have someone who's independent, is not partisan, that can go through these in, these things. And if you remember about his ruling around uh, what happened with SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, it was actually the ethics commissioner that was able to stitch together what exactly happened. Indeed. So uh, what is typically the length of time that uh, one of these investigations would take? Clearly, we're in the middle of summer. Uh, Parliament is not sitting. How convenient for the government, with the help of the NDP, uh, not likely to actually reconvene in some form uh, on a regular basis, Dan, until September. By that time, might the ethics commissioner have some kind of interim report available? Well, then that's really something that the ethics commissioner can only speak to, Sterling. Again, it depends on, uh, you know, how tangled uh, this web is and how many different parts that the prime minister's office has all over this. Look, uh, you know, he said that this was a decision made uh, by public servants. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, literally, he said, no, this this is something they came to to us as politicians and told us this is the only organization that can do that. Mm. Uh, but, you know, at, at the same token, um, he also uh, the, there was a cabinet decision that ultimately said this program should this this are this uh, proposal should go forward. So these are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. I'm not going to be able to get to it. The prime minister isn't going to answer uh, me directly uh, with, with a straight answer. But the ethics commissioner has the ability to go at this. And so, uh, you know, you want to make sure that these things are done right. And again, that uh, the process has clean hands. So I'll leave that to the ethics commissioner. But what I will say is this. Look, this is not a brand new prime minister. This is one who has continued, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, flout uh, these kinds of processes uh, and uh, this is what happens when you don't take your responsibilities under the law seriously. You end up with these investigations. I think it's bad for the system to have elected officials, I don't care what stripe you are, to have these kinds of things because it, it just confirms in, 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 in many ways what people think of politicians in general. That being said, the office is there, the, the ethics commissioner has said uh, he will do an investigation, and I trust that he will see this through. Well, uh, and, you know, you're talking about the number of mo moving parts uh, in the story. Uh, for example, you know, there also is the matter of, what is it, 35,000 students who uh, glom 
glommed on to this really quickly and applied for grants or eligibility in the program, some of whom have volunteer hours, many of whom are still looking for summer work of any description, Dan. So, you know, there's that component to it. Uh, needy students who uh, have one program in place, this would have been an option for them to raise a little more money to buy some textbooks in September. Yes, absolutely. And then there is still the uh, Canadian Emergency uh, Student Benefit that, that people can apply for. Right. And so I'd encourage students to go there for those supports. But like, let's let's look at it. You, you said exactly it. Many of these groups are, are going to be feeling an alert. In fact, now the government has actually taken back the program. What I would like to know as a parliamentarian is you know, the communications and who actually decided to end the contract. Because in every contract, there are cancellation clauses. Sure. And, uh, and, and, and many of the things I'm sure that we charity uh, had invested in their computers and their systems to get a $900 million project up and running, I'm sure that there's, uh, there's going to be real costs. So I, to me, I also wanted to find out from the Prime Minister, you know, what this will cost taxpayers. And then also, uh, as you said, there's a lot of people that have already applied. Uh, you know, they need some certainty that the program is going to continue uh, to make sure that, the, that they can plan accordingly. Uh, I've, I've had a charity or two ask about this program, and I've sent them the information. Um, and so, you know, we ultimately want to see students, uh, you know, be able to participate and, and volunteer um, I, I, but I do know that there are some big issues with this program and its administration. And so uh, we certainly want certainty for those who need it uh, and for the agencies that are trying to do a good job in our community. Dan, you're an MP. So what are students in central Okanagan uh, emailing and calling you about uh, with respect to this program that they were hoping to maybe scoop a few bucks out of? What's their beef? Uh, well, I actually haven't heard of any. I've only had a charity or two ask, you know, what's the process? So, uh, you know, again, um, without having heard from that, but what I have heard is many students, are, are, you know, who originally thought that the CERB, the Emergency Response yep. Benefit, right. applied to them because the Prime Minister and, and, and some of his ministers said in the House that this would be available to them. Many of them applied for it, have received it, and now found out that they weren't eligible because they didn't lose their work. They just didn't find a job. And so transferring them over to the student benefit has been a big issue. So this is the problem with this government. Uh, you know, it's certainly, you know, they, they, they want to do good things, but the problem is, is they don't communicate well and people get onto the wrong course. And, uh, you know, on this one, it's uh, there, <laughs> when we go back to talking about We Charity, I'm sure there's some noble goals here, but this is taxpayer money. And it's going to cost even more money now to switch tracks because of this prime minister's decisions. Interesting stuff. And it's far from done. Dan Albus, we appreciate you getting up early on a Sunday morning to bring us up to speed with this. Clearly, you and I will have an opportunity to talk more about it going forward. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. And thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Sterling. Take Dan, care. Dan Albus is the uh, conservative MP for Central Okanagan, Similkameen, Nicola, and joined us from his home in West Kelowna. Joined on the line from Seattle by Paige Browning. Paige is a reporter anchor with KUOWNPR Radio in Seattle. Back with us to talk about, well, Vancouver, one of Vancouver's favorite cities in North America. Paige, good morning. Welcome back. Morning, Sterling. Morning, Vancouver. Uh, Paige, last night uh, we had a tragic uh, accident, or was it an accident, out there on I-5. An interesting confluence of, of purposes there. There was a rally on I-5 protesting police brutality. The Washington State Patrol earlier in the day had tried to warn protesters that they would be arrested if they tried to, to go back on the freeway. That didn't happen. Some protesters were, in fact, on the freeway. And 
and one of them, we just found out just a, an hour or two ago, Paige, one of the protesters who was struck by a vehicle has died. What do you know? What can what can you tell us about more about that this morning? Yeah, this is obviously very horrible news for Seattle. Um, as you mentioned, there was a protest that had gone on to the freeway, Interstate 5, and it was organized by a group, uh, a group called Black Femmes, and they were supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And I should say, protesters have gone on to the interstate for 19 days in a row. Yes. So this is nothing new. Right. Police block it off. There, you, you cannot drive onto the freeway. I've tried. You can't get on there. So apparently a, a white Jaguar vehicle somehow entered the freeway, and you can see in video it goes um, at, at a, a high speed toward the group of protesters, and two people were hit, and one of them, as you mentioned, has very unfortunately passed away. We're just learning that this morning. Um, their name is Summer Taylor. And a second person who was hit is still in the hospital in critical condition. But uh, Summer Taylor, who we're learning has died, really received um, the, the worst of that hit. The person who was driving has been arrested for vehicular assault and is in police custody. We'll see what happens with that case. Uh, Paige, let's talk about that car, because, of course, it is on the Internet. I saw it last night. My son brought it to my attention. And, of course, it was on mm-hmm. television news in Seattle as well. The car, uh, and you're right. You're absolutely right. I-5 has been closed for protests for quite a, uh, quite a period of time. And the police had, in fact, barricaded the, the roadway by placing a couple of their cars across the freeway. So this vehicle came on, to, came up on an on-ramp and uh, barreled around these cars forming a blockade and, and uh, kept on going towards the protesters. And the video shows some of the protesters scrambling to get the heck out of the way. But these mm-hmm. two women, uh, it looks like they were kind of going to put their arms up and go, you know, stop, 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 that kind of thing. And the driver ignored that and, and struck mm-hmm. them. So uh, again, this is uh, this is absolutely crazy. This is uh, unexpected, yeah. and uh, so vehicular homicide is that the charge? Well, at, at, there is not an official charge filed, and that won't happen because it's the weekend. We'll of have course. to wait till Monday until the prosecuting attorney's office, you know, gets um, gets involved with this. Um, as of now, he was ar- the driver was arrested for vehicular assault. But now that there's been a death involved, that of course could be elevated. And and you're exactly right. I mean, the freeway's closed off. You cannot just enter it. Yeah. So that's why there's a lot of question and suspicion that this person intentionally entered and as you said protesters were waving were running out of the way diving out of the way mm-hmm. telling the driver you know waving at the driver to stop and they did not so there's uh, m- much suspicion and, and anger and tremendous sadness about uh, tremendous sadness about this happening in our city. No question about it, Paige. And by the way, the woman who has uh, so far survived this um, crash yesterday uh, and is, mm-hmm. as you say, listed in critical condition at Harborview Medical Center, she's 32, and she's from Bellingham, which is even closer to, to uh, Vancouver than Seattle. So That's again, right. uh, practically a neighbor next door. So let's talk a little bit about what led to all of this. You said that the, the freeway has been closed for these protests for a number of consecutive days. 
days. Has the same group occupied the the uh, freeway uh, with the same message consistently day after day, or have there been a series of protests by different groups? There have been a series of protests. Initially, I would say the majority of these have been the group that were in the CHOP, the Capitol Hill organized protest area, and Mm -hmm. they would walk from the CHOP onto the freeway and protest with the same message most nights, that they want a defunding of our police department, they want protesters who've been arrested to be freed without charges, and uh, many of them want our mayor to resign now. But there have been other groups who've been involved. Uh, This was one particular group uh, over the weekend that was holding a protest and rallied and marched to the freeway. So there have been different groups involved, but they they basically have the same message about defunding the police and ending police violence against the black community. Well, of course, there's a, it, it's been a it's been a festering situation in Seattle for quite a number of weeks. And you talked about the chop and, and back when you and I first talked about this, they were going through a name change. It went from Chaz to chop. And you and I talked right. about that. Now, subsequent to all of that, the uh, police came in just a few days ago, Paige, and basically cleared out that zone has it been reoccupied or in fact did they do an effective job and is that part of capitol hill now completely reopened there is no longer an an occupation of this area so in that sense the police um were successful in their attempt to get people to leave. However, people are still gathering in that vicinity mm-hmm. most days to to rally, to protest. And this is um, basically the people involved in this movement now say the chop as a location is over. Right. But the chop as an idea and their demands you know, is, is very much still alive and maybe even just beginning. So... Um, you can not go to Cal Anderson Park, which is the park that the police have now shut off and where they were protesting. Uh, Cal Anderson Park is shut down. You're not allowed there. So police have been successful in that, but the protest is far from over. Indeed. So the uh, one of the one of the contentious issues, and one that got the mayor into a lot of trouble and into a bit of a conflict with the police chief, was the precinct that was mm-hmm. uh, abandoned and boarded up during the time that the the area was occupied by protesters. The Seattle Police Department just essentially closed it up and walk away. Now, has that since uh, they and it became a point of contention? The police chief saying. Uh, before it happened, a few days before it happened, enough is enough. Let's get back to business. That's our premises. We need to retake it. Uh, have they effectively moved back in, or is that building still empty and boarded up? For the most part, it's still empty. Police have toured the the precinct building. Our police chief has toured it multiple times just to assess if there's any damage. But police officers are not inside working in it. Um, they've made it clear that that is what they want. They want to be working from their station again, but yeah. it's not happening at this time. And there's there's much discussion now between our mayor, police chief, and some of the demonstrators about uh, turning part of the police precinct into some sort of community room, in turning it into some sort of de-escalation center, Uh, People protesting do not want this to be a police station. They want it to be some sort of community space. The police department's not going to have that, but 
Um, at this time, they're still not using the, the building. What was really interesting was during the time of the occupation and uh, and the uh, removal of the uh, of the troops of the police uh, officers from that precinct, calls police calls, as in nine one one calls that went out during the last couple of weeks of occupation, were not able to be answered. The police couldn't respond to, and there were a couple of shootings, uh, several shootings, a couple mm-hmm. of killings, uh, young people mm-hmm. too. Page, uh, the police weren't able to do their job because of the blockade. Uh, And so it really became uh, quite contentious, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And and this is a really interesting point because um, I was just looking this morning again at the police data and data that they have released actually showed that the number of calls to police from this area went down during the protest occupation. Mm. But there were more uh, there were more shootings and and dangerous crimes that happened, including two shootings that led to two black teenagers killed. So it, it's um, it's very contentious. It's it's a really interesting situation because this did feel dangerous for people who live in the area and are hearing of shootings and police not able to come in. But on the other hand, there were less lower level crimes. And um, this was really a community area for people. There was free food. There was a place to stay. There's a whole camping uh, camping site set up. So it was a community that, unfortunately, toward the end of it, uh, there were shootings that that really just led to its demise quickly. Paige Browning is with us. Paige is an anchor, a reporter with KUOW Radio in Seattle, back with us to talk about what's been going on in that city down the road a couple of hours. And Paige, uh, the other day, the demands were tabled to the mayor and the police chief by the protesters. And they basically, I'm quoting from your website right now, basically they boil down to three things, defund and demilitarize the police force, dedicate more resources to health and social services, and release protesters without filing charges. What sort of success do you think they're going to have with those three? Well, that's a good question. We have seen some movement already on all of those three topics. We've seen Seattle's mayor said that she wants to defund the police department, if you will, by 5%. Although the protesters are asking for it to happen by 50%. So they are very much still asking for that demand and and not not, uh, accepting the mayor's 5%. But those discussions will still happen. So I would not be surprised if that gets moved above what what our mayor has uh, proposed at this time. On the second part, um, which was... More resources to health and social services. Right. For for health and social services and particularly they want more resources for black and brown communities in Seattle. And already our city leaders are talking about how to make that happen. We haven't seen it happen yet, but we're, we're seeing proposals of a uh, hundred million dollars already to be put into specifically health and community and social so, social service resources. So there's movement on that. And then the third is about protesters. Yes. We've seen dozens of protesters arrested in the past three and four weeks, and many of them have been released already. However, they can still face charges, and this is because of statute of limitations and that charges have not been taken off the table. So this is something that protesters are watching very closely. They know exactly who's still in jail and who's being charged, and there will be demands for these protesters to be freed 
until it happens. Okay, I want to just change gears for a second because over the course of this uh, occupation of Chaz and then CHOP and all the rest of it, it came to the attention of the President of the United States who uh, on several occasions over basically the past month has uh, leveled the, the howitzers at the municipal and state governments, both of the mayor and the governor of Seattle, uh, criticizing mm-hmm. them quite roundly and threatening to send in troops and take responsibility if they can't handle it. What was the reaction when all of that happened locally? Well, well, the, the, the mayor of Seattle and the governor of Washington are not fans or supporters of President Trump. So they, they really just roundly dismissed his comments. President Trump's press secretary said that the, the chop, the chaz, the protest was, uh, was a failure, a failed experiment. And people here, even who were not at the protests, are, are basically dismissing that. The protests, as I just mentioned, have seen some success. Mm. They're seeing discussions about defunding the police and putting more money into community. So in Seattle, uh, as your listeners all know, there are not many supporters of President Trump. It's a, a, a very blue uh, democratic city and, and state, frankly. So no one's really listening to those those threats that Trump would send in the troops and his uh, his joy in seeing this closed. No one's taking it too seriously. Okay, and of course, we last time we talked, there was some friction between the police chief and the mayor, again, over the notion of the abandoned precinct, the chief wanting to take it back, the mayor uh, taking a more uh, laid-back approach, perhaps a wrong, a, a poor adjective, but nonetheless, a, a, a mm-hmm. less aggressive response. Uh, have they managed to mend their fences, and the, is, is everyone moving in the same direction again? Yeah, this has really brought the mayor and this, Seattle police chief together, they are very much working in lockstep and supportive of one another, and they have not always done so. So this has brought them together. It's also brought many of our city council members together in opposing the mayor and police chief. Uh-huh. So there are new divides that have come about, but the the top leaders on policing in Seattle are really united in wanting the protest to be closed as far as the occupied zone and wanting police to get back into their station. And a final question, Gene. It's so good to have you back with us. We do appreciate your your joining Thank us you. again. Uh, the the uh, going forward, uh, the the occupants of that mm-hmm. chop zone have moved on. Now, have they simply, as have been the case here in Vancouver a couple of times already this summer, have they simply moved on to re or occupy another piece of turf, or has the whole thing disintegrated? There have been. Some places that they've started to reoccupy, some new areas, including near the Space Needle, which everyone knows. Sure. Uh, but for the most part, what they're doing is those people that have homes in Seattle have gone back to their homes, but they're still coming out for protests every day. Uh-huh. So it's not an occupation anymore, but they are still coming out. They're marching in the streets. They're, they've been marching to the mayor's house. They've been marching, as we talked about, on I-5. There's not one site anymore. In fact, some of the protesters have said this might not have been the smart decision by city officials because previously the protest was was uh, contained sure. to six square blocks, and now people are all around the city. 
Interesting stuff. Paige, we do appreciate your taking the time to be with us again. It's uh, lovely to have you back with us. Your reporting is outstanding. And as this goes forward, we'll keep in touch, okay? Thanks so much, Sterling. Have a great day. You too. There's Paige Browning, who is a reporter with KUOW, NPR Radio in Seattle. And that is the very latest from down the highway. And unfortunately, yes, one of the two women, if you have not heard the news this morning, one of the two women involved in the protest last night that was struck by a vehicle, quite deliberately struck by a vehicle, has died. And uh, that's that's a tragedy. Uh, No charges yet. That is likely to happen tomorrow morning when the courts reconvene. It's time to talk clean energy with the boss of Clean Energy BC. A pleasure to welcome Executive Director Lorene White to the program. Ms. White, Lorene, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Lorene. Uh, we're talking this morning about the Clean Energy Amendment Act, but first to back us up, if you would, a little, because let's find out what we're amending in the first place. Let's go back to the original Clean Energy Act and talk about it and why in 2020 it needs to be updated. Well, um, the Clean Energy Act came about really um, with an impetus around the world um, to transition to more clean energy use and transitioning off of fossil fuels. Right. So that's sort of the underlying premise for the Clean Energy Act, which was passed in 2010. And that had a lot to do with um, Site C at the time, too, didn't it? In part, um, most of our energy in British Columbia is is supplied by hydroelectric. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, but clean energy, the Clean Energy Act um, imposed a number of standards and and other actions that would help to achieve that goal other than just what's being produced. Okay, and some of that had to do with independent power producers, correct? Correct. So, um, so the, the government at that time um, was responding when it comes to the independent power producers to a situation where BC at that time was importing about 18% of its electricity, which is very high, Mm -hmm. and the prices were very high. Um, So the government at that time wanted to find a way to secure supply for British Columbians at a predictable price. At the same time, other jurisdictions around the world were investing quite heavily in the development of the newer technologies particularly in wind and solar and batteries. So um, many jurisdictions were providing direct subsidies to try to um, enhance the role of independent power production in these technologies. Rather than using a direct subsidy in British Columbia, um, it was essentially managed by BC Hydro through the contract. Right. So same effect, but it was to stimulate that industry. So this was uh, 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 the uh, while other jurisdictions may have been looking at uh, stimulating alternative energy sources, as you mentioned, like wind and solar. In those days, the government of British Columbia was interested in more hydroelectric sources of power, which they considered to be more reliable. Right? 
No, not necessarily. Um, the reliability was being able to generate electricity here in BC rather than having to rely on the spot market sure. and buying it from the U.S. The spot market energy is excess energy from other jurisdictions, so you never know if there's actually going to be enough supply for what you want. So it's, it's good to use as a temporary measure if, if you are short on supply. But to depend on it, and, you know, back in those days to, to the tune of 18%, is just risky because you don't know if that supply is going to be there tomorrow. So hydropower in that, in that time um, was not particularly techno- technologically advanced and didn't require a lot more to get it, you know, up and running to a critical mass. Mm-hmm. Solar and wind, on the other hand, were still in their early stages, so they were a bit more expensive. Over time, what's happened now, 10 years later, is that wind and solar are fully developed, and the costs of both have dropped dramatically. So this is an ideal time now to be really investing in those and deploying those technologies. And that's what's happening in other jurisdictions around the world. So, and uh, we also had an announcement from, uh, after a change of government, of course, a couple of years ago in 2018, the Premier uh, announcing that we, as in British Columbia, will electrify every sector of the economy in order to meet uh, climate goals. This was all part of the government's new approach to climate change. And out of that has evolved something called the Clean Energy Amendment Act. So we talk now about the original act, Lorene. What does the new one look like? And what it's what would it what would the major change be? Well, so the um, the policy that you mentioned is called Clean BC, yep. and it has some targets for electrification of BC's economy at certain target dates. So there are targets for various parts, you know, transportation, buildings, etc. That would require a lot of electrification, um, far more than site E could provide. Um, and so we don't we don't exactly have the projections now because BC Hydro is doing its long range planning right now, out to 2040. But BC Hydro is not including the objectives of Clean BC, and so we've asked that question. Um, you know, if the BC government and BC Hydro are saying demand will be flat to 2040 or we have a surplus, but they're not including the objectives of Clean BC, then we're asking the question, are we serious about Clean BC or not? So is Hydro so not... now? Okay. So now, um, with the introduction of Bill 17, um, we're not against the entire bill. There are pieces of it that we think are good. But the one provision that we have a problem with is repealing self-sufficiency, which was in the original Clean Energy Act. That means that rather than purchasing electricity from independent power producers here, that BC Hydro would go back to the spot market. Ah, which would put taxpayers uh, uh, or rate payers, if we're talking hydro, uh, at, at more risk of, uh, uh, of the exactly. vagaries of the spot market, correct? Right. That's right. You know, if we have a situation where, you know, climate change is affecting um, the U.S. jurisdictions where we import energy from, then we could be looking at more drought, more 
California wildfires, mm-hmm. etc. And those could very easily disrupt the electricity supply. So we're just questioning why do we go back to a situation that the Clean Energy Act was intended to address in the first place? Right. And, I, I'm, and I'm, what other... I'm sorry, I'm just curious as to why we, we have this sort of dual purpose thing going on. You, as you described it to me, perhaps I've just misheard you, but it, it sounds like it, you're having some difficulty getting BC Hydro on side with the government's objectives. I appreciate there are two entities, but Hydro is a crown and uh, ultimately responsible to a minister, if I'm not mistaken. So what's the problem with government and Hydro not going down the same road together? We put that question to BC Hydro during their planning process, and other than electric vehicles, they have not included any of the projections of of Clean BC's targets for electrification. BC Hydro said it's because they've not been provided with direction. So um, BC Hydro and the BC Utilities Commission received their mandate from the, the government. Right. And neither have been given a mandate to implement the objectives of Clean BC. I see. So, so without that, BC Hydro says they can't. So is that just a step that uh, somebody m- didn't take or overlooked or uh, and will now return to and implement? What's with that missing piece, that missing link? Explain that or, or how it might be fixed. Well, I don't know. Um, we don't have an answer for that right now. Okay. Um, but our concern is that because BC Hydro is doing its long-term forecasting right now, um, that they, they predict what the demand will be, and then they acquire the supply to meet that demand. If they're not including the objectives of Clean BC, then they're going to project that the, de- the demand will be low and therefore they don't need more supply. And with putting any supply online, it takes some time, right? You've got to plan and permit and construct sure. facilities to mm-hmm. provide the electricity. So it, it really means that we would become even more dependent on import. So in a perfect world, given you're, uh, you're, you're the boss, you're the executive director of Clean Energy BC, Lorene, how would you uh, instruct Hydro? What, would they, what changes would you make tomorrow uh, vis-a-vis getting this thing a little more aligned with what the government sees as British Columbia's future? Well, I think there are two fundamental principles. One is I can't think of any industry where a government would say they prefer to import things rather than creating them here at home, along with the jobs, the economic development, the taxes Mm -hmm. that come from building projects here. I can't think of an industry where a government would say we would rather import from another jurisdiction in the U.S. rather than building our own economy here. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one thing that we, we don't understand. The other piece that we don't understand is you know, why those Clean BC targets are not part of the planning process right now. So um, I, I think this is the time. We've got, as far as I know right now, until December when BC Hydro finishes its load forecasting to actually include those numbers so that we've got a clear idea of what demand will be. And I think that demand will be quite high if we, in fact, electrify our economy as, as we say we're going to. 
Very interesting stuff. And um, is there a deadline? A final question to you here, Lorena. Is there a deadline that you're concerned about? Well, this act was tabled, um, and the legislature will be sitting starting next week. So it could come back for second reading any time. So I'm hoping that um, the government will reconsider that portion of it um, and not repeal self-sufficiency because we... We have the technology, we have the ability, we create tremendous value in in local communities, including First Nations, many own IPPs. And it's our own power. Right. It's our own backyard, own as, you, as you point out earlier. Uh, I'm just going to direct our, our listeners to cleanenergybc.org as a website to follow up on a conversation. And uh, we very much appreciate having the chance to speak to you, Lorene White. Thanks so much for joining us this weekend. Good luck with this. Thank you. Joined on the line from New York by Anastasia Lin. Anastasia, back with us. Uh, she is the uh, China-Canada Policy Ambassador for Canada's McDonald Laurier Institute. She was born in Hunan, China. Her family immigrated to Vancouver when she was 13. Uh, she went on in her career to become an actress and a model. At one point was uh, nominated or uh, acclaimed Miss World Canada. Went to, uh, to uh, join the international competition in China and was refused at mission because of her outspokenness against the regime in Beijing. Anastasia Lin, good morning. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, what many would see as the final nail in the coffin, if you will, of Hong Kong vis-a-vis the uh, policy from Beijing, rubber stamping the security arrangement or the security agreement, which essentially now uh, changes the status of Hong Kong. And the world has reacted in just a very few short days, too. Yes, that's right. This uh, national security law is is a tool to beat everyone into obedience and make everyone vulnerable. Because the terms were revealed just right around midnight, the night before it was implemented. And the second day, there were a lot of arrests already made in this uh, under this new law. Um, and the terms they use, secession, subversion, collusion with foreign forces, these are all vague terms and nominal charges that the communist government, uh, like the interpretation is completely upon Beijing government. So it makes everyone vulnerable. Well, and let's talk about that because you, you talk about some, some fairly well-known terms, subversion and that sort of thing. Uh, and I suppose the part that many find quite ominous, Anastasia, is that this bill is aimed specifically at Hong Kong uh, residents and their um, uh, protests and their dissatisfaction with being uh, folded back into the rule of Beijing. But it also, in some ways, is ambiguously worded enough to threaten Chinese nationals abroad and, and, and members of the Chinese diaspora, people who are citizens of other countries but whose ethnicity is Chinese, somehow or another Beijing is trying to give itself permission to bully those people too. Yes, you're right. So right now, if a Hong Kong student or a Chinese student protesting uh, a Canadian university, this is outside of China, when they go back to Hong Kong, they can be charged and arrested right away. And this law is uh, also allow authorities to go after uh, foreigners. So activities outside of Hong Kong, like journalists, academics, 
businessmen, if they criticize China, criticize the Beijing government, upon arrival in Hong Kong, if they go there for business, they can be arrested and charged too. Interesting. So basically, it's making Hong Kong just like China. Yeah, and of course, we had a protest just outside the consulate on Granville Street yesterday afternoon, uh, featuring uh, large numbers of our community, members of many ethnic communities, all of whom were gathered uh, on the streets uh, with their signs, protesting the new security laws in Beijing. Now, there were um, security types with their video cameras recording mm. all of this for a variety of purposes. As you well know, you've been recorded on more than a few occasions yourself. So mm-hmm. would one of those videographers been working for Beijing? Oh, very likely. In the past, um, when I go out to protest, there always, especially around Chinese consulate, there's always someone, uh, looks like a random person on the street, yeah. holding camera, taking photos. Um, and it's very difficult to try to stop them because we're in a free country. Uh, supposedly, people have the right to take pictures everywhere. Sure. But this, is, this freedom is exploited by the Communist Party. And we all know that China's uh, spy infiltrate our community in a level that is um, sort of unprecedented, especially these days. So it's very dangerous for people in the free world. So I guess what's difficult for some people to understand, Anastasia, and perhaps you can help us, if you are a citizen of Canada, you grew up in Canada, you're a third-generation Canadian, but your your ethnicity is Chinese, and maybe, just maybe, you've got relatives two or three generations removed back in the old country. It is It is possible if you are, for example, a strident opponent to the politics of Beijing, that agents of said regime may contact you to try to slow you down in your protests by threatening those relatives several generations removed back in the old country. It has happened. Yes, that has happened. It's called guilt by association. It happened to me. It happened to many of my friends. And right now, the most dangerous thing is going to happen to a lot of Hong Kongers. And they're very nervous. There have been um, these Hong Kong protesters that have deleted Facebook, Twitter, anything they have published online in the past, because all of it can be used against them right now and put them in jail. And the sentence for this uh, new law, the minimum sentence is 10 years, and the maximum is life in prison. So right now they are even dismantling their uh, organizations, pro-democracy organizations, because even mere membership in these organizations in Hong Kong could get them in trouble and throw them in jail. And what about people who belong to, as you do, uh, protest organizations here in North America or, for that matter, anywhere outside Hong Kong, Australia, the UK, pick a country? How much pressure are you feeling in terms of intimidation? Has that been ramped up a bit? Uh, very much so. First of all, they will threaten your family in the territories that have been control, and now that includes Hong Kong. Um, and secondly, because everything is documentary, uh, documented here, uh, sometimes when you go outside and you see Chinese students holding their cell phone very close to your face, um, sometimes these Chinese students voluntarily or involuntarily work as informat, uh, and they sometimes even be very vocal about threatening of posting these videos onto Chinese um, internet and then report to authority. And all these things, they act as an invisible iron hand to keep everybody silent, even outside of China. Um, and the pressure is constant for people who want to speak about communist regime.
Anastasia Lynn is back with us on Weekend Mornings. Anastasia is the Ambassador for Canada-China Policy with the McDonald laurier Institute. She's joining us from New York again today. Hong Kong's not dead yet, for its people are not dead. Hong Kongers are still fighting. A quote from one of the many people who have been protesting the new national security law. Some of those people are gone. 300,000 of them, Anastasia, are uh, Hong Kong people are uh, duels. They have Canadian citizenship. And I'm thinking many of them are looking to get the heck out of there uh, when the opportunity presents itself. But of course, China not only controls who comes in, they also control who leaves. And nobody's allowed to leave right now, are they? Well, these Hong Kongers right now, I know a lot of friends of mine are Hong Kong activists. I'm they sure. decide to stay in Hong Kong. Um, some of them are not even looking to get out because they feel like that is their city and they need to defend it. Um, you're right. Um, Hong Kong is not dead because its people has not extinguished the fire, the, the fire for freedom in mm-hmm. their hearts. They enjoy the Western-style freedom. They know their rights. They know what is um, God-given rights to human beings. And that's uh, a bit unlike the people who were raised in mainland China, which since their childhood they have been taught uh, with indoctrination with how the Communist Party is always righteous, glorious, and uh, will be forever correct, and that their individuality is completely taken away. So they will continue to fight underground, and there are a lot of them are looking to get out uh, because basically it's any moment now they're going to be thrown to jail. Mm -hmm. That's why it's very important that international allies, uh, we need to form an international lifeboat policy for Hong Kong. UK has already passed legislation to allow 3 million Hong Kong people to gain residency in UK and uh, with a pass to citizenship. And I think China, Canada should also join that. The United States has also indicated a willingness to uh, be flexible and uh, welcoming to uh, people in dire straits uh, coming out of Hong Kong uh, as a part of the retaliation for this national security law announced by Mr. Pompeo, the Secretary of State, the other day. He did indicate a willingness to some extent of the United States to welcome uh, those Hong Kong people as well. And yet Canada, Australia, to, to its credit, has stepped up. Australia's been quite aggressive uh, over the past many months vis-a-vis China, uh, and they've also indicated some degree of willingness. Canada hasn't said much yet. Is it because of the two Michaels, do you think, Anastasia? Well, if we're talking about the two Michaels, yes. And recently, there is another Canadian citizen who's been sentenced to jail. Correct. Like sentenced, yeah, for eight years. Her name is Sun Qian. Mm-hmm. She has been there for many years already. In back in 2017, I started a campaign to try to get her out. But because she was born in China, and this is how racist Chinese Communist Party is, no matter she's a Canadian citizen, they are not going to let her go. And uh, Canadian government, I believe did not do enough to get her out. And right now she's renouncing her Canadian citizenship, most likely under dress. Um, She has been tortured. She's been put into solitary confinement. Um, She's been deprived of sleep. And all these things, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and and you can't imagine life being much more comfortable for either Mr. Spaver or Mr. Kovrig, either of the two Michaels. Not uh, their confinement is over five hundred days long now. I'm curious. Uh, the prime minister dug in his heels and took a position finally on something to do with China, and uh, quite firmly stood against the notion of a prisoner swap, Meng Wanzhou, for the two Michaels. Did you agree with the position taken by Canada in that regard? Very much so. And I think this is the time that we seek support from allies, because everyone is speaking up against China. Um, Australia has their fair share of bully, being bullied by China. They sure and have. now they finally um, take action against it. I think that's the direction we should move toward. You know, and also, we, are not, we have leverage. We have Magnitsky Act, which allow us to ban the entry of communist officials who have committed crime against humanity and human rights abuse inside China. We can freeze their assets. All of that is tools at our disposal. And, of course, we have yet to make a decision on Huawei. Uh, and that that is part of taking a, a greater picture position, as Australia has decided uh, they're not interested in Huawei and their 5G, uh, and other of the Five Eyes allies are, are feeling the same way, and yet Canada is still waffling on this particular uh, subject. Do you think, out of necessity, Canada is going to find a backbone in the next short while? We have to. Huawei is not a company. It is an arm of the Liberation Army of China. It's their cyber warfare arm. Australia recently, even though they re- rejected Huawei, they have still been cyber attacked, um, most likely by the Chinese Massively, government. you're right. Yes. So it, it, by having Huawei in our 5G system, that's a huge liability. We're basically selling out our future to China, Chinese Communist Party. The notion that you uh, brought up just a few minutes ago about uh, the indoctrination of youth, uh, this is not an abstract notion for you. You didn't come to Canada until you were 13, Anastasia. You went through from kindergarten right up to the time you left. You were in the People's Republic of China's education system. You were one of those little kids being indoctrinated. You know what you're talking about. That's right. Well, my indoctrination started when I was in kindergarten. Um, The photos on the wall, the songs we sang, they're all politically aligned to the Chinese Communist Party. And the worst part is there's no alternative. There's no way for these kids to see light. The Internet is censored. No one around them dare to talk about the truth. For them to even find personal integrity in a situation like that as a child, it's very difficult. So in some way, even a lot of, I see a lot of immigrants coming from China, even when they first come to Canada, it's not an immediate transition that they start to engage with the rights and the beliefs and values of Western society. It takes a very long time to shake off that indoctrination and that control on their individual faculty. I, I have no problem believing that part at all. Back to Australia for a second, because they have been much more aggressive than we now. The, the downside of that is if you anger China, you poke the bear, they're going to retaliate. And in the case of an export uh, economy like Australia, similar to Canada, you're going to lose market share. They're going to cut off your products. You're going to have to find new customers. Australia said, okay, we'll take the risk. You're wrong, and we're going to tell the world you're wrong. And go. so do your damnedest and, and, and you know, bring on the consequences. Uh, they're going to forfeit 
split market share, they're going to have to go out and find new customers. So would Canada if we were to take such a position. That seems to be inhibiting to the Canadian government. Well, but you can't drink poison to stop the thirst. By dealing with China and trading with them and relying on their market, they will forever use it as an economic coercion tool. So we need to find long-term sustainable ways to build our economy, not relying on a totalitarian regime that will wield this as a baton to threaten us all the time. And one final thought, too, because there's a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars from China invested heavily in the Canadian post-secondary education industry. A lot of uh, colleges and universities relying heavily on huge grants for research and development and other projects from China. And therefore, they find a lot of pro-China or comfortable or okay with China sentiments on Canadian campuses. That's a comfort zone they enjoy. Well, that's right, and it's part of their warfare to control freedom of speech on campuses. Confucius Institute is a great example of that. I remember this story told by an Australian uh, student, Chinese student. She said she learned about Tiananmen Square massacre not from Australian universities, but from a poster on the wall outside of the university. We need to use our freedom outside of China to advocate for the freedom of those who don't have it inside China. And that's part of our duty. Yes, we can take in all these Chinese students, but we need to teach them our value, what we stand for. And maybe they can go back to change China. But right now we're seeing all these um, universities, even academics, censoring themselves and not speaking the truth. We're not doing these Chinese students a favor. We're not doing Chinese people a favor. And in in the long run, we're not doing ourselves much good either. Anastasia Lin, I have to leave it there. I thank you very much for coming back with us. It's always a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. From New York, there's Anastasia Lin. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.